My name is Garrett Davidson, if I haven't met you, and uh, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of creation today, specifically creation of the world. So I'll, I'll start us in prayer, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Lord, we come to you and thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for what you've done. Uh, we thank you for creating the world uh, for your glory and for our good. Uh, we thank you for creating us. Um, God, for choosing us before the foundation of the world. God, for all that you've done uh, in the history of salvation, God. And we pray uh, that as we talk about these things this morning, we'd come to love you more as we think about what you've done in creation. Father, we pray all of this uh, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, yeah, like I said, we'll be talking about the creation of the world uh, today. If you've not been in Foundations for the last few weeks, uh, we were, last week, Ben Brophy talked about kind of the grand narrative of the Bible. So, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Uh, we talked about creation a little bit then, but we're going to really dive into the creation of the world today. And then in two weeks, Cody Montgomery will teach about the creation of man. So we won't get too far into that. We'll talk mostly about the creation of the world today. So, yeah, in the beginning, God created. Those are the first words in the Bible. That seems significant, right? Uh, these, uh, it's, it's not a, that doesn't make creation a more important doctrine than the other doctrines, but it is significant that it's, it's one of the first things that God chooses to talk about in his word. So I think there's a, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called Genesis in Space and Time. Uh, and a question that he poses I think will be helpful for us to consider as we, we kind of lay the foundation for what we're going to talk about this morning. So the question he poses is, what is the least we can make of Genesis 1 through 11? So what's the, what are the fundamentals that we can pull out of, out of Genesis? I think often when we, when we get into the creation account, we try to explain as much as we can with the creation account. So there's a bunch of different angles to come at it from. And so I think it'll be helpful if we just look at what... So God gives us everything we need for life and godliness, uh, but that doesn't mean he tells us everything. <laughs> so uh, we'll, we'll take a look at the creation account kind of from that lens. So what are the, what are the fundamental things that we can, we can learn about to learn more about God and love him more? So last, the last time this class was taught, Michael Walters taught it, and he brought his children's catechism. Uh, I thought it was helpful, so we'll do it here as well. Uh, so if you're not familiar with a, a catechism, uh, that's just, it's doctrines in the form of question, questions and answers. And so the first question in his children's catechism was, who created you? You can answer that. God, good answer. Uh, what else did he create? All things. And why did he create all things? For his glory. That's right. So that's a picture of where we're headed. It all kind of boils down to that. Uh, yeah, and I don't know that I can put it better than that catechism does. So to that end, uh, if we keep in mind Francis Schaeffer and his, let's, let's get the basics out of Genesis, uh, our primary consideration will be theological. So there are myriad perspectives on how the creation account relates to the topics of philosophy and science. Uh, it's good and right to wrestle with these things, uh, to want to understand them, and then maybe even to attempt to reconcile them. 
But ultimately, our confidence in the trustworthiness of the creation account uh, comes through faith. So to that end, could I get somebody to read Hebrews 11.3? Who can get that? Thank you, Tyler. Just three. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That's right. By faith, we understand that the universe was created. So with that in mind, let me give you an idea of where we are headed. Uh, Our discussion will be driven by the following questions. These are the ones that are listed on your handout. So how should we define creation? Why did God create the world? What does the Bible teach about creation? How ought we think about evolution? How can we apply all of this to our lives today? So as we dive in, our main idea is this. God created the universe out of nothing. It was originally very good, and God created it to glorify himself. So I'll say that one more time. It's also on your handout. God created the universe out of nothing, It was originally very good, and God created it to glorify himself. So that'll bring us to the first point, uh, the first question. What do we mean by creation? So can someone read Genesis 1-1? Who can get that? Or recite it, for that matter. Thanks, Brett. That's right. It's pretty straightforward. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the first thing uh, that I notice here is that there is a beginning. So we see that God created time. This is the, the point where time started. So why might it be important theologically? The, the concept of time, the fact that God created it. Yeah, please. Well, if time wasn't created by God, God would have to exist in time. He wouldn't preside over it. Yeah, he wouldn't be transcendent, right? He would, yeah, he'd be bound within time. Did you have something? I was similar. It's okay. That's right. Yeah, so that God is, if he's infinite, he's outside of time. So some of the things, some of the ways we see time and the way that God interacts with it, he's before time. We just talked about that. He was before the beginning. So another thing I think is important is that we know that uh, there's a coming judgment. So there, there's an end. Uh, evil will be destroyed. The earth will be made new. Uh, Jesus came at the appointed time and will return at the appointed time. So God is sovereign over time, uh, including the time that we are given. What, uh, what other things do you notice here in Genesis 1-1? What are some things that we can draw out of it? They encompassed heaven and earth being everything. That's right. Yeah, so God created the universe, all things. Yep. 
So we touched on this a little bit in the, the time part. God is, is pre-existent, so he existed before time. He's self-sufficient, so he, there's nothing that brought God into being. Um, could someone also read Colossians 1, uh, 16 and 17? Who can get that? Thanks, Brett. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things work together. Yeah, so this is one final observation I wanted to make here is that God created all things, visible and invisible. So if you were here last week, Ben Brophy talked about, he used the illustration that if you look up, whatever you see, God created it. If you look down, God created it. Look around, God created it. But uh, I'd want to add to that and say, even if you don't see it, uh, God, God created it. So he created the things unseen. So... Coming around to a definition, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones defines creation this way. Get ready. Here we go. It's a mouthful. Creation is the free act of God, whereby he, in the beginning, brought forth the whole visible and invisible universe without the use of pre-existing materials, and thus gave it an existence distinct from his own, and yet always dependent on him. So that's a mouthful. If you want the Garrett Davidson version of that definition, it is uh, this. This would be a little easier to write down. God created everything from nothing, and in him all things hold together. So God created everything from nothing, and in him all things hold together. So that brings us to uh, point B, uh, which is two key aspects of God's character that I'd like to, uh, to highlight. To that end, can I get somebody to read Acts 17, verses 24 to 31? Who can get that? Thanks, Greg. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the earth having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Thank you, Greg. Uh, so I want to call out two kind of key phrases there that will help us highlight uh, God's character. In verse 24, you see, he's the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man. So we see that we, we touched on this a second ago. God's transcendent over his creation. So he's above it. He's, he's different from it. He's wholly other. Uh, 
Uh, and then we see in verse 27, it says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So he's both transcendent and imminent. He's, he's intimately involved in, in his creation and, and in our lives. So I'll move on to point C and we'll, we'll unpack some of what, what those characteristics of God mean for us. So what I'd like to propose is that the Christian explanation, this God that is both transcendent and imminent, is unique. Uh, the tension between transcendence and imminence sets our God apart. He's wholly other, completely set apart and distinct, distinct from his creation. But he's not, a, he's not a clockmaker. He doesn't just set and, and forget. He manifests himself in history and in the lives of people in huge ways and in tiny ones. So he's involved in the mundane and, and the dramatic. Uh, he's not impersonal and removed far from us. It's only in Christianity that we can reconcile a God that is both near and far. He enters into his creation in the person of Jesus and promises to dwell with us in eternity. He exercises sovereignty over all of creation and at the same time extends mercy to individual sinners. This is our God. So this idea of transcendence and imminence uh, also helps, uh, we've touched on some of these, but just to put some labels on them, it helps to dispel some other common views of how the universe came into existence. One of those is, is pantheism, which teaches that matter is God. So we'd say the universe is a manifestation of God. Uh, so God would be imminent, he's involved, uh, but he's, he's not transcendent, he's not over and above his creation in pantheism. Then there's dualism, which teaches that God and matter are both eternal. So we see this some in Gnosticism, which teaches that, uh, yeah, the spiritual realm is good, the material realm is, is evil, and that those things have, have kind of been battling it out for, uh, for all eternity. Yeah, so in this view, God is in opposition to his creation. He, he's transcendent in a sense with respect to the physical world, but he's not imminently involved in it. He doesn't care about the, the physical world and dualism. And then so obviously a creation narrative contradicts naturalism, which would just teach that there is no God at all. Uh, so I'll stop there. Uh, any thoughts on how you're encouraged by this or questions that you have about any of this, what we've covered so far? Okay, so that uh, will take us to, we talked about some of what we mean when we talk about creation, but why did God create the world? Uh, that's, that'll bring us to point two. So I've got three verses here, if I could get some volunteers. Uh, could somebody read Revelation 4.11? Who's got that? Thank you, Becky. Uh, Isaiah 44.6, thank you, and Hebrews 2.10, thank you, Dennis. You can read Revelation when you get there. That's right. Worthy are you, our Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. So he's worthy of praise because of who he is. 
Uh, but here scripture tells us that one of the things for which we can praise him is, is the creation of all things. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. That's right. He is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Scripture clearly teaches that God is the beginning and end of all things. And then Hebrews 2.10. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Thank you. So all things exist by him. He sustains them. They also exist for him. For his glory, all things exist. So the primary purpose of creation is God's glory like the children's catechism said in the beginning. Uh, but what is so wonderful and mysterious about this is that he chooses to use our good and our salvation as a primary means by which he displays his glory. And that brings us to point B. Can someone read uh, Ephesians 1, 3 to 6? Who can get that? Thank you, Tyler. That, Tyler. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Yeah, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. One of the greatest mysteries of the creation process, and there's many, <laughs> is that God's plan for his people was formed before the foundation of the world. God's people have always been central in his purposes in creation and the exaltation of his glory. So this should impact our evangelism, it should impact our the way we think about sanctification should help us to think about the hope we have for the future. Um, so yeah, to that end, I would love to hear some of the ways uh, that you all are encouraged by this. How does the idea that you are part of God's plan uh, impact the way that, that you walk with the Lord? Yeah, so that's that that's that eternal hope I talked about a second ago, right? It, yeah. Go ahead, Dennis. Yeah, it's it's like um, to to use the, the silly analogy of Forrest Gump and that whole idea of like life is just kind of drifting through like that feather, right? And you're just kind of wherever wherever things take you. And it's like, you know, God is exceedingly purposeful and intentional in every aspect and detail of life and, and that just is an incredible assurance. And that's great to say, in those moments of suffering, in those moments of, of trials, that this is not one big, you know, fatalistic, you know, thing. It's, it's extremely purposeful, and God has done it for, for a very good reason. Yeah, purposeful is a good word. It, it gives us purpose, right? Go ahead, Becky. Oh, and I think we think more 
that means that in his plan for me to be like Jesus every single day, he's picked the precise moment and place and time. Like in all of history, if there were somewhere else that I could be that would be better for his glory and to make me like Jesus, I would be there. Yeah. So just that kind of peace in that he knows and he has a purpose, um, I think it's just pretty mind-boggling. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. I think one of the reasons, I mentioned evangelism, one of the reasons it, so it, it impacts our evangelism because he's in control of it, right? He's sovereign over, over the salvation of souls. But it also, uh, I think this, this idea of having purpose is attractive. Like it, this isn't something that we should hide or uh, it's, it's useful in evangelism in that way that I think people want to have purpose. This, this question of how we got here and how we were created is one that's existed forever and that Christians and non-Christians alike ask uh, of themselves. So yeah, that's good. I think that the drawing of purpose as well um, <clears throat> just takes us outside of fear, which is something that people don't think about. So if you if you don't have a belief in something, okay, if you don't have a belief in God and the purpose of God, then we live in fear of the things that are happening around us where I think God's purpose for every little thing, it allows us to see those purposes and it draws us out in evangelism, for example, like just to do the right things as opposed to the wrong. Yeah, yeah, it helps us. I think that touches on what Greg was saying about it. it helps us to deal with present suffering, um, knowing that there's a purpose in it. Go ahead, Dennis. And I think it puts us in a right relationship in terms of, of how we view ourselves with God. And God did not need to create anything. He was self-sufficient and perfect in his being. He chose to create and, and chose to create people, chose to, you know, to fall. And, and so to, to put it that way, you know, it helps in terms of how the world would tend to try to flip that upside down and, and put us at the center of things um, and, and very, you know, me-centric. Um, but it, it lifts that burden and, and really puts us underneath him and that authority. And that, that again, is a very peaceful and secure way of living life. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's helpful. It simultaneously humbles us and makes us small, but gives us a much bigger meaning than we could ever have on our own. Yeah. And I think, I love that you say that. God tends to do that, doesn't he? Because I think that happens at the cross, too. The, the idea that we put Jesus on the cross is humbling, right? Like, he died for us. But also, the idea that Jesus was willing to die for us, like, exalts us, right? Um, so, I, yeah, that's kind of the way that he works. Um, that's good. Okay, we'll keep moving for the sake of time. Um, so we've defined creation. We've talked about why God created the world. The bulk of the remainder of our time will be spent, uh, as it should be, in Genesis 1, as we consider point three. Uh, what does the Bible teach about creation? So I need three readers again. Uh, we're going to read all of Genesis 1 here. So who can get Genesis 1, 1 through 10? Thank you, Sarah. Genesis 1, 11 through 19. Thank you, thank you, Eileen. And Genesis 1, 20 to 31. Thank you, sir. It's Caleb, right? God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be signs, and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. For God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every green bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the sea, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that moves on the ground according to its kind. Then God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creature thing that moves on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And 
God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Well, there it is. Thank you all for reading. There's a couple things I want to call out here. Um, but uh, if you have already looked at your handout, it's fine. Just don't do it now. Uh, what, things, uh, what things do you notice, maybe patterns that you pick up on here, or uh, yeah, things that break the patterns, things that you notice in, in the, the creation account that are significant? Yeah. Yeah, creation was good. It's repeated seven times. Why is, why is that important? Yeah. And it, it shows us that, that God is good. Everything he created was, was good. It helps us to define uh, good and evil, I think. So we see that if everything that God created is good, uh, then evil is a distortion of goodness that God created. What else? The repetition of according to its kind. That's right. Yeah, everything is created and reproduces according to its kind. I think the separation of those kinds as well. So, like, if you notice, um, when he created the whales, it's separate. It's something that he specifies specified as separate because they're a mammal, not like fish. Right, yeah, so there's some, sorry. There's some specific, yeah, there's some specific purposes of things. Right, yeah, he distinguishes between, yeah. yeah, sea creatures and creatures of the earth and man. So that's that's something I think that is worth calling out here. Man's creation is, is unique. Uh, so man's given dominion over the rest of the creation, all the other types of, of things that are created and created in God's image, which is unlike anything else in all creation. The other thing I think is worth calling out uh, is that creation was the work of the triune God. So all three persons of the Trinity are involved here. So if you look at Genesis, uh, it's 1 verse 2. In verse 2, I'll reread it for us. It says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then uh, earlier, if I can find it, we read Colossians 1. Sorry, I can't find it. Colossians 1, 16 to 17. Bear with me, guys. Uh, could someone could someone read that? Uh, I've got it. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you back up a few verses to verse 13 and 14 there, you'll see that this him that we're talking about is, is Jesus. So that's the Son. Uh, so why might a Trinitarian understanding of creation be significant? Why is it significant that all three persons are involved here? Caleb? None of the three were created. That's right. 
That's right. Yeah, that's the right answer. <laughs> um, yeah, so all three were, none of the three were created. They were all there before uh, and, and part of creation. Right, so I think uh, it's really funny how I kind of get a kick out of how John lays this out. Because <laughs> he's, he's kind of repetitive about it, right? So in the beginning of the Gospel of John, he wants to make this super clear. Uh, and he says, in the beginning was the Word. Do you get it? No? Okay, well, uh, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, well, what about no? <laughs> he was in the beginning with God, and he just keeps repeating it, saying it kind of over and over again. So, yeah, it's, it's important to understand that the, the triune God was involved in creation, all three persons, so that we know that uh, they weren't created later. So this helps dispute... Um, those of you who were here will remember Ben Robin singing uh, Arian Heresy a few weeks ago. Uh, so, and what he's saying was there was a time when the sun was not. I'm not going to sing it, so don't get excited. Uh, and so, so this would dispute that, right? It'll, it's going to dispute modalism, which, because we see here all, so modalism says that God kind of shows up in modes uh, or in he puts on masks of different persons of the Trinity. And, and this will dispute that because we see all three persons working together at the same time in, in creating the universe. And it, it yeah, it's, it's just something that's important to call out in the creation account. And I think because all man is rooted in sin as well, it's very important that the Trinity is involved because it also shows their authority over everything. So when we question things, often... And when it's even been questioned through Scripture, that um, Jesus' authority was questioned, for example, and this also states that he that the Holy Spirit and Jesus have authority over everything as well. Yeah. So not only did he exist, he he is God, right? right? And has has the authority. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, I'm happy to camp out here if there's other observations about Genesis 1. Or questions even. All right, we'll keep moving. So that brings us to point B. What happened in the initial moments of creation? There's two main views uh, I want to talk about here uh, for the way to interpret particularly the first two verses of Genesis. So one says that there's a gap between Genesis 1, uh, sorry, Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2. The other would say that there's no gap. So a couple things that, that are helpful to call out just as you're, you're thinking about this are... Uh, the word used in 1.1, uh, translated create, is the Hebrew bara, uh, it's different than what's used to describe God's creative activity in days 1 through 7. 
So this means, bara means to create out of nothing, uh, to create with no pre-existing material. The word, or there's a couple words that are used throughout the rest of the creation account. Uh, and those uh, mean something more similar to fashion or, or to make, uh, but it is, it's a different word. Uh, one other thing I think is helpful to notice, one of the patterns that you may have picked up on is that there's, there's some parallels here between the first three and the last three days of creation. So if you look, on day one, we have the creation of light. And on day four, we have the creation of the light bearers, so sun, moon, stars. Similarly, so as we move through day one and four, day two and five, we have the creation of the expanse, or the, the sky, the heaven, and the separation of the waters, and then on day five, we have creation of fish and birds to fill the expanse and the waters. Then on day three and six, we've got the dry land brought up out of the waters and the creation of, of beast, and, uh, beast of the land and man to fill the dry land. So you see, you see parallels in days one to four, two to five, and, and three and six. So, uh, the one other, so there's, yeah, there's, like I said, two, two kind of views here. Um, there's considerable disagreement. <laughs> uh, wise Christians that hold, hold a high view of the Bible can land in either place. Uh, I'll take questions on that in a second. Real quickly, I want to cover one more thing where there's considerable disagreement, uh, and that's on the meaning of the word day. So that'll bring us to point C in your handout. I'll, I'll run through this section and then stop for questions. Ben talked about this some last week if you were here. Uh, the word translated day is the word yom. Uh, it's most often translated to mean a literal day, but is sometimes used to talk about a period for an expanse of time. A good example of this, a good example of this, if you're in Genesis, you're fine. We've all done it. There you go. God wanted us to hear that word. All right. Um, no, you're totally fine. Uh, so, yeah, a good example of, I was talking about yom is sometimes the word day is used to talk about an expanse of time. If you're in Genesis, you can go to Genesis 2. Genesis 2.4 says, In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, recounting the creation account. And so it talks about the whole creation week. Uh, and uses the word yom to describe that week. So it, yeah, it uses the word day to describe a, a, an expanse of time rather than a, a 24-hour day. There's also some argument that uh, with the fact that Satan and his angels had already fallen prior to the time of man's fall, that that requires either a gap um, or a period longer than a five or six 24-hour uh, days. You can see some of that in, in Jude 6 and Genesis 3.1. So in favor of the literal day, uh, it just tends to read that way. That's, that's one argument. Uh, the repetition of evening and morning is difficult to explain uh, if, it's, if it's not a literal day. Additionally, uh, it's often argued that the Hebrew work week is modeled after the creation account. So we see the institution of the Sabbath. Uh, that comes from creation. Uh, and also, since we're heading into Easter, it's worth noting that there are some parallels in, in Holy Week that would... Uh, tie to the, the creation account. So for example, on the sixth day, uh, that's when Christ is crucified, 
It's also when God's work is finished in the creation account. The seventh day, Christ is in the tomb. That's the day that God rests. And if we cycle back to the first day, that's the day Christ is risen and uh, the day that God creates light. In either case, uh, there are valid arguments. Uh, so I don't, I don't think we can be dogmatic about such things. Uh, there's much mystery in the creation account that we will probably not have answers to this side of heaven. And it can be fun to speculate, but we shouldn't do so at the expense of unity. So if we were to take away kind of one thing from these two, uh, okay. these different views, I would say it's know that uh, yeah, Christians that have a high view of the Bible can land in, in either place. Thoughts or questions about that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So I think <laughs> why people would argue for it or against it. Um, well, let me, so your, your first point, I want to reiterate that just, just to make it clear so that it's, it's helpful. So I think it's argued that the, when the word yom is used in succession or with a number, uh, as it is in the creation account, that generally means uh, a 24-hour day, right? That's the argument, yeah, um, just in case that's helpful. And then your question was about the significance of the gap, like why people might land there. Yeah, so I think there's, there's good and bad reasons to land there. Like I said, I think some are trying to create room for how, how, are, how are all of these things that are happening in Jude, or how has Satan fallen? There's, they're trying to create time for... Uh, so. There are scriptural reasons, I think, to believe that there's a gap there, or that more time might be necessary for the fall uh, of Satan and his angels to happen before the fall of man. I think more commonly, uh, people are trying to create room for, and we'll, we'll get more into this in a second, uh, trying to create room for science or evolution uh, and explain that. So I would be... Yeah, I'd be hesitant to, to arrive there for that reason. I think, yeah, if there are scriptural reasons that'll, so we should interpret scripture with scripture, I think, not interpret scripture with science. Uh, that's, does that answer your question? Why people might land there? Yeah. Um, but it does account for it. Last week, the question was raised, how could evolution have happened? Yep. Because um, how would we if there wasn't a death before the fall? Yeah. Um, and yeah. I find that persuasive, but maybe that's part of what the gap theory accounts for as well as it would allow death before the fall. But I don't, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't match with what I understand of Scripture. Yeah. Satan, so Satan, um, 
falling before the fall of man. Uh, I think him, him tempting man to the fall leads me to believe that he fell before man did. Um, I understand that, but I'm saying like, we don't know that man fell on day eight. Like, we don't know how, how many days there were between the end of creation sure. and the fall of man. Yeah. So that's, that's why I'm saying like, couldn't it have happened? Yeah, yeah. After? Yeah, that's a good point. I think another significant piece is that Satan's fall was from the grace of God, not from necessarily heaven or earth. In, in that sense, it's from the grace of God that he fell, not necessarily. So therefore, it's not relevant as to whether it was before or after. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good point. Um, I, and to be clear, I'm not, uh, in, in case it feels like I'm leaning one direction or the other, I'm undecided on these things myself. So I'm not, uh, I'm not a proponent of one view or the other. Um, so thanks for helping me clarify them. Other thoughts or questions on this? I saw your hand. I got lost somewhere and I'm not sure where. Okay. If you have a question, it, it can be about anything we've talked about. Um, just can you explain just the whole gap again? Just really yeah, here, let me. So the idea, and like I said, I'm happy to, if anybody um, has anything to add here, I'm happy for help. Uh, so the idea is that Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the argument is that after, so that's kind of God's, it's not a, it's not a heading over the story, I think. It's, it's a verse that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then there's, there's a long period of time between that and God starting what he does in the, the six-day creation that we see following. Okay. Yes, sir. Jerry. Breakout. This is, you're taking some, tackling some tough subjects. Yeah. Um, so I think what Garrett landed on it when he concluded his remarks was really good, which is that, you know, unity on the high view of scripture is more important, right? And, you know, biblically here, especially here at Del Rey, where we really try to, like, keep main things the main things, right? And uh, secondary things Exactitude of the nature of this issue is not the central thesis of the gospel itself or of salvation of Jesus or sin and resurrection. And so I thought the way you landed it is great, which is that, yeah, like this is in the realm of what some of the mysteries of the Bible, mysteries of, of the Lord that will all get to see the full reality of one day and we'll get to ask God and really. <laughs> rejoice at, the, at how he conducts his mysteries. And, you know, I think similar to how Garrett and the, and, and the elders have taught through other portions of scripture, right? Like, scripture has different um, purposes and different styles of books, right? And, you know, we just went through um, a very, very long process in Revelations. This is not apocalyptic literature per se, right? But in that way, you know, exact words and exact meanings, like they can vary based on how it's used and, and the context and all that. So I guess on a, that's what I would just say is that as a whole, like I think this is one of those areas where it's not a central major point of salvation. Right. And so I think there definitely is more openness and room for disagreement on the like and still be faithful and following Jesus. Um, and I think, you know, 
I think when we look at the kind of like the arc of biblical theology, right, like the most important parts of, of the story of the gospel, right, that um, the things that fall slightly outside of that, the more didactic we become, the, the tougher it becomes, right? So how does the sun move backwards or hold in place for 12 hours right. when, you know, Moses holds up the staff? Does physically the earth stop spinning? Or, you know, like, I think God can perform miracles. The actual exact explanation of it is, you know, a little bit TBD. The more we become very didactic about exactly how that works, you know, I think has the tendency to essentially lead us into difficulties, right? But that doesn't mean scripture's not true, and that doesn't mean that, you know, we can't have a high view of scripture. I think it leads to the, I'll just speak for myself on a personal basis, it leads me to the place of where I have to trust God yep. when I have, there are mysteries I don't understand, yeah. right? Even to the extent for as simple as we talked about, the, the Trinity is a mystery I don't fully understand. Yeah. Yeah, but to, that's, thank you for that. That's helpful. And I think uh, the one thing I'd want to say is that there are, so in the creation account, there are things that we should be dogmatic about, right? Things that have gospel implications or that uh, define God's character. So like the fact that all creation was good, that we want to be dogmatic about. Uh, a literal, Ben touched on this last, last week, a literal Adam. So Adam's not a figurative figurehead. He, he's, he was a real man. Uh, we see that in Romans 5. And so yeah, that has gospel implications as well. And then I'd say also the fact that God created out of nothing is another thing that we want to maintain that, that people that differ on these things that we just talked about would agree on. Thanks, Jerry. Well, I think that's why I brought up that Satan's fall, you know, or Satan's fall from God was the, the point it's not about the day. We all believe that he fell from God's grace. Sure. Right. <laughs> so it's not yeah, about yeah. the day, so the day's not relevant. Yep, there's fundamental things that, that I think we, yeah, people landing on either side of this will agree on. Okay. So, yeah, it's worth noting that Jerry touched on a lot of this. Our goal is not to remove mystery necessarily, uh, but to live faithfully given what, what God's revealed about himself. There, so Deuteronomy 29, 29 talks about secret things that we're not meant to know. Uh, Psalm 133 talks about things that are too high for us, too great for us. Now, I don't think those are, I think those are sometimes used as uh, an excuse for us to be ignorant or to not wrestle with these things. I don't think that's the case. I think it's, it's a warning from the Lord to not be distracted by these things, right? So the doctrine of creation, if, if you think about it and it causes you to question him more than it does to worship him, uh, that's something to, to be examined. That's, that's not its intent. Yeah. So let's move on to point four for the sake of time. Uh, so, yeah, so we've got seven minutes to cover evolution. <laughs> I planned it that way. Uh, yeah, so this is the question, right? How does the Bible's account of creation reconcile with modern science? The first thing I'd want to call out is I think it's often, it feels like the burden of proof is on God and the scripture. The burden of proof lies with mankind, <laughs> uh, so not with God's word. Anytime an inability to reconcile science with scripture exists, 
it, it can fall on either end of the spectrum, meaning it could fall with science or it could fall with our misinterpretation of Scripture. Uh, but let me clarify here. Scripture is always right. <laughs> our interpretation of it uh, can certainly be flawed. And so some things that, that could cause us to be unable to reconcile these things are a flawed interpretation of Scripture, limited knowledge of the world in which we live, scientific mistakes, or biases. Often both our theological interpretation and scientific conclusions, I think, can be swayed by, by our bias. So all that to say we should approach both science and theology with humility. A couple things I want to note to that end is that these early chapters of Genesis present themselves as historical accounts. Uh, though there might be some figurative language, things like God walking in the garden as an example, uh, should not look, yeah, we should not look at the early chapters of Genesis as an allegory, though. Another thing I'd want to note is that science is regularly changing. So evolution in particular doesn't claim to be fact, it's a, it's a theory. Uh, one more thing, science and evolution are unable, and I don't think they would claim to, I'm, I'm no scientist, but this is my understanding, I don't think they would claim to explain the ultimate origins of life. So even things like the Big Bang, I think, uh, try to explain how the universe we live in came to exist from pre-existing matter, but I don't think it, it claims to explain pre-existing matter. And then, uh, yeah, I just want to note that on purely scientific grounds, evolution is, is not uh, the irrefutable case that it is presented to be. It's, it's kind of the beginning of an explanation. There's lots of gaps in, in fossil records and uh, missing transitional species, and there's yeah, many other unanswered questions. And these are things, all things that I think scientists would, would acknowledge. So all of that to say, accepting evolution wholesale creates some serious theological difficulties, particularly when we talk about man. So we touched a minute ago on the Imago Dei. Uh, the Bible talks about man's creation, that it was special, that he was created from the dust. Uh, so that's worth noting. <laughs> uh, it also seems unlikely that man could have evolved into the Imago Dei. It's difficult to imagine that the Imago Dei needed to be improved upon. Uh, there's also the question to ask if, if we can evolve, kind of constantly improve, can we evolve out of our sin problem? And then, um, yeah, one last thing. Scripture tells us that death and destruction are uniquely the result of man's sin. So if man is the result of evolution, it, it takes a long time to get to the fall. Uh, and the theory of evolution, where uh, Becky touched on this a minute ago, would require billions of years of death uh, before the fall. So we have three minutes. If there's any questions or comments on any of that. Yes. Is there a distinction between whether Christians believe in microevolution There is, yeah. I think there are, again, I would say that's a place where faithful Christians can, can disagree. Yeah. Macro, so I think if we, yeah. Microevolution, I think that's a place where faithful Christians can disagree. Faithful Christians can agree to disagree. Or on macro, right? On micro, no. Yeah, so microevolution would be things like, uh, so I'm no expert on evolution, but I'll try. If anybody is, feel free to step in. Uh, micro would be small changes in animals. Um, 
yeah, things like uh, the, the, the adaptation for where you live, that kind of stuff. Yeah. The, the development of like related species, right? So like different types of dogs or like coyotes, yeah. things that are closely related genetically. That's right. But are also like visibly different in certain ways. That's um, right. So I think Macro would argue that uh, kind of everything evolved from the same species at some point way in way yeah. back in history. Thanks. Does that help? Okay. Anything else? Um, so, yeah, I, I don't want to endorse a particular view. I do think somebody I know that's been that's given a lot of thought to this is Tim Keller. If you were to look up some of Tim Keller, um, he's he's written quite a bit on uh, creation and evolution and how those things interact. He might be helpful. Again, I don't know. Yeah, he could be helpful in thinking through it. I think. Um, if that's helpful, but yeah, I think where your views clash—that's kind of the point—is we want to we want to rely on scripture and assume that we're mistaken somewhere else. I think, um, yeah, but Tim Keller should be helpful. Yeah. All right, I'll pray for us, and then we'll we'll head out. Father, we come to you and thank you for the fact that you created uh, the world, that you created the universe from nothing. God, that you did it for your glory and for our good. Uh, thank you that you chose us uh, in eternity past. You chose us to use us for good uh, to your glory, God. We are, are grateful for all that you've done. God, I pray that as we wrestle with uh, uh, difficult things, God, that as we wrestle with our limited knowledge, uh, that you would help us to grow in our love for you, to grow in uh, faith, um, yeah, would you use these things to, to cause us to love you more? Father, we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.